Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Well, Ben, welcome back. We are here with another exciting section to talk about, section 29. This is, uh, I've actually been kind of looking forward to this section. It's, it's got a bunch of, uh, really interesting little nuances to it. And, you know, it's just the only section we're covering this week. Yeah. It's a little more PG 13 at times. (laughs) (laughs) A little bit more, right? Yeah. God in this apocalyptic literature gets a little bit uh, graphic sometimes. And you're you're left wondering like, what is going on here? (laughs) And I'm still not even sure I understand, but we're going to (laughs) be... We're going to try to We're going to wrestle some, with it anyway. We're going to wrestle with it anyway. Hey, come join us as we wrestle with this. Yeah. But uh, yeah, section 29, it's given in September 26th, of, just a few days actually before September 26th, 1830. And so the, the church has now been organized for several months. And, you know, section 20 is when the church is formally organized on April 6th. And all the subsequent chapters afterwards are really just the people trying to figure out what they're supposed to do next. And I think that's kind of funny because you can see Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery and the Whitmers and Hiram Page and all these, all these really good people just like, what do we do next? <laughs> yeah. And it really does kind of flavor the, the, the tonality of, of these sections. And, and of course they are busy. So I don't want to oversell the point that they're not doing anything. That's not the, the point I want to sell, but it's just that they don't know the end. And they're doing their best with just trying to figure one thing after another. And so you can imagine the kind of questions they're asking. And as we've said on some previous episodes, the types of questions we ask and they ask specifically are pretty powerful in the kind of responses that God gives them. And so this really gets into a discussion about prayer and about the divine feedback about what we get from our prayer. Because a lot of the times we have the assumption that, you know, if we ask bad questions, then God's going to, you know, tell us, well, that's a bad question. Give me a better. And I guess those experiences do happen. That that experiences, or those experiences have happened to me. But far more often than not, I end up kind of getting more of a feedback from the types of questions that I ask. As if the Lord is almost wanting me to keep exploring where this road is going to lead me. Mm-hmm. And so as I'm thinking these thoughts and I'm thinking these things and the Lord's going to reveal to me what I need to do to make the next few steps. And there's a there's a powerful video by Elder Holland. Uh, it was actually a conference talk that he gave that they made into a video. And it's one of the most powerful talks and uh, meaningful talks that have been in my life. And that's when he talked about going out into a into the southern Utah desert with his son as he kind of went out and explored some old places where he used to grow. Elder Holland grew up there in uh, near St. George. And at the end of the day, as they're coming home, they come to a fork in the road and it was impossible to tell which which road they were able to go down and which one they came in on. And so as they're there in the fork in the road, they decide to pray and they get the distinct impression that they should go right. Him and his son is like, we got to go right. And so they went right and they went down about 400 yards and it was the end of the road. Clearly the wrong choice, he said. (laughs) 
So they turned around and they flipped back around and they went down the other road, clearly the right choice, and they were on their way. And so his son asked at our elder Holland, he said, Dad, we, we both felt really strong to go down the right path, you know, to, to, to choose the right, as it were. <laughs> and it was clearly the wrong path. Why did the Lord do that? And I love Elder Holland's message because he said, perhaps the Lord gives us answers so that when we travel down these roads and we come to their dead ends, and we come to the dead end of this idea or the dead end of this thought, and maybe the Lord gives us what we need to be able to take this idea that we're, we're using to ask the questions to get this revelation, maybe the Lord's giving us answers to come to a knowledge of the dead end of this road mm-hmm. so that when we backtrack, we, we know that we can go down the other road with confidence, knowing that this road has not led us to where we needed to be. It's almost like a thought experiment. You know, let's let's explore this a little bit. You can see where it's going to go. And then when you realize that's not the right way, we'll, we'll, we'll go back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I love that. And for me, uh, my wife and I joke around a lot of times because we, that's really how the Lord has worked with her and I in our, in our relationship with our family, you know, in, in business opportunities or in, you know, my family's moved around a lot until we moved to Bakersfield in the last uh, five, six years. And, you know, I, I think by the time we were married for, uh, for what, 10 years, we'd moved like 23 times, 20, 23 times in 10 years, I mean, an insane amount of times. And so finally, when we put down roots and, and we're sitting here, the Lord leads us down into some really interesting paths. And I know to a lot of uh, people along the way, they're like, man, what are the Logans doing now? <laughs> like, move, they're moving where? <laughs> and so, and so there's, there's this, I don't know, there was a confidence that we gained in the Lord in making these choices that to the world didn't make any sense. But to us, we saw the trajectory of what the Lord had done you know, as our lives are going up and down and up and down and up and down. We could start to see kind of this other line of what the Lord had been doing in our lives. So I know it's kind of a tangent to the to the rest of the discussion today with uh, section 29, but when we started thinking about the types of questions we ask and the kind of responses that are given, I wonder, because as you and I were talking beforehand, Ben, there, you know, we were having a discussion about possibly the types of discussions and questions that these people were asking to get these kinds of questions. And I think we should definitely touch on that. But as we as we progress here through section 29, you know, this is a very interesting section because it talks a lot about the gathering, the, the end of days gathering. It talks about the millennium. It brings into a little bit of the message of the 12, the original 12 disciples and apostles of, of Jesus Christ and about how they're going to judge Israel. From there, we end up getting this really interesting apocalyptic literature section in the middle of the of the Revelation that talks about death and chaos and destruction of the wicked. And this is a really interesting topic to talk about because of it really gets at the the essence of God's nature, what God is, what God is doing to His children, what God is doing for His children, and kind of the end result of His children. There's some interesting conversation here about hell and about how we kind of our final state with God that as we begin to evolve as a church and as more revelations come out, some of these ideas become a little bit more difficult to to, to grasp and to grapple with that uh, maybe we can do a little bit of work with today. But then we at the end of the section, we get into this discussion of the, the kind of the, pro, the pre-mortal war where Lucifer gets kicked out of heaven and we get kind of a, a little mini Garden of Eden narrative, which is really interesting, just a really interesting placement about how how and why all of this fits together the way that it does. But in getting started here in verse one, I was, you know, I, I love here, it says, listen to the voice of Jesus Christ, your Redeemer, 
The great I am, whose arm of mercy hath atoned for your sins. You know, over over the Christmas holiday, Latter-day Peace Studies, we did a, a program where every day we were able to publish a, a different name of Jesus Christ. And, uh, you know, this was Lindsay Owen's idea, who is our co-producer for Latter-day Peace Studies. And she had the idea of doing this for Advent. And it was such a remarkably good idea. And so with each day, we were doing a different name of Christ and and writing a little bit about what that meant to us. And and so I had the great opportunity being able to share in with some of that and write some of those. And, and when it came time to write about I am, there were just, there were a lot of things that I had forgotten about and a lot of new things that I'd learned in kind of in researching that and in typing that out. But in one of the main the main gists of how Moses ends up having I am appear in the scriptural text for the first time is when he's there at the burning bush and the Lord turn, tells him to go to go save his people, to go to go back into Egypt and to go get his people and to tell Pharaoh to let him go. And Moses then turns around to the Lord and says, hey, um, the people are going to ask who sent me. What's your name? And this is, this is a, I think we overlook just kind of the significance of this kind of situation. When we have Moses talking with God, and Moses doesn't even know his, he doesn't know anything about him. He doesn't know his name. He just, he, he's got this experience going on with a burning bush, and he's, he's being told by this divine entity to go save his people. And he's like, who should I say sent me? The Lord responds, tell them that I am sent you. And I, I, I don't want to read so much into, you know, my modern sensibilities into an ancient person. But if I were to hear the word, just tell them I am sent you, my initial reaction would be like, you am? Well, you am what? What are you? And the response is that I am that I am. And what I love about this, this response, I mean, there's, there's so much doctrine in this and there's so many things written about I am. And I'm not a scholar of, you know, an ancient text scholar. But what I've what I have read about and learned about it in, in how this plays out, especially with the ancient Israelites as well as with the Jaredites in the Book of Mormon, the similarities in the Exodus narrative between the Jaredites in the Book of Mormon and between the ancient Israelites during the the Moses the Exodus with Moses from Egypt to Israel for those forty days, or those forty years even, is that they both ended up leaving the home of their their residence in moving towards and migrating towards a promised land. And in doing so, they followed I am into the wilderness, into unknown paths where they had never been before. And in doing, they had followed a God that they had knew nothing about. And in fact, it's symbolized by a cloud. And this cloud, symbolically, clouds and mists and vapors, uh, water, is highly symbolic through the Old Testament of of chaos, of, of something that you can't understand, something that you can't, it doesn't have distinction. You know, a cloud, you can't, you can't put a cloud into a box, as it were. You know, you try to hold a cloud in your hand and you can't do it. You can't... Undefined. Yeah, it's undefined. That's a good word for it. And so this whole idea is that there is this God that you are following and you have no idea what this God is, but there is something inside of you that tells you to keep putting in the next step. And as you keep putting in the next step, you keep getting led further and further into this promised land, this world this, this world where you're told that the meek will inherit the earth, that this earth that you're going to inherit, this promised land, has been set apart in his choice for you. 
And eventually, as in the case of Moses and the brother of Jared, they both end up seeing the embodied God. And they both end up seeing the the real representation of, of God. And in the case of the Israelites, they kind of jump the gun. And they, they want to have a God that they can see, that they can handle, that they can, they, that they can really understand. And so that's when they fashion the golden calf. And the golden calf, it's physical. It's an embodiment of, of that they can see, they can touch it, they can form it, they can shape it, they can do anything to it. And it's, it's not a foreign idol. This was supposed to be the representation of Yahweh. And so we can see the juxtaposition here that as Moses is having his experience with the Ten Commandments and eventually in seeing the, the face of God, the Israelites were having their experience. They've been following an undefined God, this great I am. And God was getting ready to make himself known and made himself known to Moses. But the people were jumping the gun. They wanted to, to know God before they were ready to know God. So here in verse 1, I think this really is a powerful verse and a very powerful introductory verse in saying, listen, I am Jesus Christ. I am the Redeemer. I am the great I am, that thing which was undefined in the Old Testament. And and, and I get, you know, even when uh, in the first division, when Jesus Christ appears and he says that the ministers, that they, they, they teach the doctrines, but, the, you know, they pay lip service. They, they talk about me, but their hearts are far from me. They still don't see me as I am. And so this whose arm of mercy hath atoned for your sins. What an interesting, what an interesting description of God to include of himself, the great merciful one. I just, I just think this is a fantastic verse to enter into this discussion. So uh, a lot of things that I wrote down while you were talking. <laughs> <laughs> Go for but, it. Uh, maybe I'll, maybe I'll kind of like work backwards through them because, you know, when you were talking about the idea of these, these Israelites and, and the God that they wanted to worship and, you know, it, it, it just made me realize that what they were doing was they, they wanted to understand the God that they were worshiping, but instead of waiting and, and sitting and, allowing God to reveal himself to them, they they proactively imposed their idea of who they thought God was upon God and then worshiped that, right? Because that they were coming from Egypt and that's who the gods were. You know, they were they were embodied within these statues. And so that's how you do it. That's how you worship a God. You have to put it within a statue and then you you worship it. That's all they knew. That's all they knew about who a God would be. And so they took that idea and imposed it rather than sitting and waiting for for God to reveal himself to them. And I think there's there's quite a lesson in that, right? About how we approach God. That do we take our ideas and and put them on him, or do we sit there and allow him to reveal himself to us? So anyway, I liked I liked your sort of the narrative there that you were are going through. This whole section has a, a bunch of ideas that are actually very undefined in a way. And it's it's moving in the direction of defining them within a Latter-day Saint uh, restored gospel narrative. But there's still a lot of things that that aren't uh, very well spelled out here. You know, we get little bits of about the fall and little bits about a sort of plan of salvation, uh, pre-mortal life. And, you know, he talks about spiritual and temporal, some of this uh, physics, so to speak, of the cosmology. And these things become further expanded and 
identified or defined, I guess I, I should say, to keep with that later in the Doctrine and Covenants as revelations come. But but here they're sort of given as a little bit more ambiguous ideas of what they're to understand. And all to the point that this section really is answering, like you said, the questions that are asked. And I I really like the idea, and I'm, I'm still sort of fiddling with it, so to speak, that the Lord just takes whatever questions we ask and he, he does answer those. You know, it says, ask and you shall receive. And that word receive, I think I, I'd like to have a whole discussion about as well. It comes up in this section because receive is a something we do. It's not a passive, it's an active thing. You know, when, uh, when we do the laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost, it's kind of a commandment, receive the Holy Ghost. It's something that we're commanded to do to receive it. And a lot of times when we talk about receiving something, it's seen as passive. Like uh, in the context of blessings, um, we say we receive blessings. And what is active about that is, is that we are actually choosing to receive them or we're choosing to see them or recognize them for what they are. And that's different from blessings being given to us. You can be given something and not receive it, right? In fact, the scriptures talk about this. They say, you know, why? what does it profit a man to be given a gift if he doesn't receive it? Anyway, this is kind of going off on a whole tangent about receive, but it was it was a thought that I've had about, about blessings and how the Lord blesses us. In any case, when we're asking questions, there's this whole James thing, you know, James 1.5, that we, we ask and there will be no upbraiding. So upbraiding is like criticizing. It's saying that's the wrong question, right? <laughs> or in it, like in sort of a critical way. No, the Lord says, okay, I'm going to answer that question. That's the one you asked. That's the one you're ready to receive the answer for, right? So this section we we see is an answer to these particular questions. And uh, when we look in sort of the historical context of this, the, the section heading really just doesn't give much of it. Um, but you can look at like Revelations in context, on this, and Saints gives a little bit of it as well, that there were these elders of the church, and this is actually about the time of Hiram Page. This this revelation might have been received before the revelation for, for Hiram Page. And so you know these the saints are very eager to receive new knowledge and understanding. So they're asking a lot of questions. So they ask questions about the second coming, they ask questions about the fall, and they ask questions about Satan and, and all these sort of things. They want to understand what this is. And so the Lord is giving them what they ask for. I absolutely love how the section starts. And you commented on verse one. I love these first few words. Listen to the voice of Jesus Christ, your Redeemer. When I read that, sort of in a paradoxical way, see, listening to his voice, to me, means something different than reading the scriptures. And I know we have this phrase, it's like, when you want to talk to God, you pray, and when you want to hear God, you read the scriptures. I agree with that to a certain extent, but the point isn't, what we're hearing isn't the words in the scriptures themselves. What we're supposed to be hearing is the voice of the Lord spoken to us through the Spirit. And so what I think is very important in all sections, but I love how this section kind of begins with it to remind us, hey, as you're reading these, what's most important is what the Spirit tells you, not the words on the page as you read. And I think that is an important thing to remember as you go through it, because there, 
you know, when we get to that, there's going to be a lot of things that are like difficult to really deal with and, and fit in with the character of God and understand why is this even being said? Why are we talking about people's flesh falling off their bones and their eyes out of their sockets? How does that help me understand who Jesus Christ is, right? <laughs> and <laughs> it, that's a hard question to answer if you don't just start off with that verse one, that you're not... You're not looking at those words. You're you're listening for his voice as you read, what does the Spirit teach you? And so I, I just really love how that begins out. In fact, a lot of these uh, verses here at the beginning, these verses here up through seven or so, are a really great introduction into preparing us to receive something. You know, even verse three, it says, your sins are forgiven you, therefore ye receive these things. Verse 5, lift up your hearts and be glad, for I am in your midst, and am your advocate with the Father, and it is his good will to give you the kingdom. I love that verse there. I think that reveals to us quite a bit, if we sit with that for a bit, about who Christ is and, and what he's trying to teach us about who our Father is. Yeah, I like that as well. And, you know, I even have with circled because I think a lot of the times we talk about this particular verse as that he's our advocate to the father, Mm -hmm. as if the father is like this judge that is weighing the case for and against us. And Jesus is the one who's speaking for us and that Satan's the one who's like speaking against us and that, that that's how it's stacked. When in reality, it's he's our advocate with the father that they're on the same side together. They're both championing us. It's not like God the Father is this impartial you know, judge that's trying to render judgment in this matter. Both Jesus and the Father are really, uh, they're highly hyperactive in, in, our, in our well-being and in us being able to see exactly what we are. I mean, we, we were made in the image of God. And being made in the image of God, we are literally God's children, right? And so, I, yeah, I absolutely love that. You know, verse two is one of my favorite verses that Christ talks about, you know, who will gather his people, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wing, even as many as will hearken unto my voice and humble themselves before me and call upon me in mighty prayer. Behold, verily, verily, I say unto you that at this time your sins are forgiven you. It's a beautiful thing for them, especially in this time and age when, you know, Christianity was really ramping up with this, with this idea of sin. And sin, sin, you know, it's still a, a hot topic in, in religious circles. But, you know, back then, sin was this really big deal. And for God to keep on saying, your sins are forgiven you and your sins are forgiven you, this is a really big cultural issue for them that you can tell that they're petitioning the Lord. And you and I, we've uh, we've brought this up before, but there's this quote from, from jo- Joseph Smith where he says that, I have a key by which I understand the scriptures. I inquire... What was the question which drew out the answer or caused Jesus to utter the parable? To ascertain its meaning, we must dig up the root and ascertain what it was that drew out the saying of Jesus. And in the same way, I I think a lot of the times we end up interpreting the scriptures as God always revealing a celestial standard truth. Yeah, just a knowledge dump. Just a knowledge dump, right. It's like, okay, well, you answer this question. I'm just going to give everything, you know, answer everything to you. When I think the scriptures are far, far more nuanced than that, because the Lord is recognizing the audience that he's speaking to, and the scriptures, especially these scriptures, are coming to men and women who are in a particular context. 
And I think one of the things that we do kind of bad exegesis and hermeneutics on in, in even Latter-day Scripture is that we infer that every verse is, is proclaiming a celestial standard truth. That there's like this one level of truth that God is speaking at all times and that he's holding everybody up according to all of these truths. When I think the power of that quote from Joseph Smith really gets us to try to get into the lives of the person asking the question, that maybe, just maybe, the person asking the question is receiving an answer that's going to take them down their own 400 yards. And if we're not careful enough with the scriptures, maybe we may infer that going down that 400 yards is necessarily the right path every single time, or that that's a celestial standard to do because we're not the one, we're not in the place that Joseph and Oliver and these men were when they were asking the question. And so if we're not, if we're not careful, you know, a lot of the time we might look at these and, and really try to hang so much meaning on a particular verse that that was never the intended meaning to hang that much meaning on it. And so that when we find out later that that verse was never intended to hang all of that weight on, then we end up having to challenge our narratives. And a lot of the, myself included, I've had a really hard time in my life of being able to challenge my assumptions that I have, my assumptions and the definitions or the truths or the interpretations that I've had on certain verses. I've hung a lot of weight on certain verses that later on in my life, I have to come back and be like, whoa. That, you know, you know what, that's way too much weight to have put on that one scripture. And come to find out that scripture can't hold the weight of everything that I put on it. And, you know, and, and I speak in, in one way about my, my old politics days of holding so much political philosophy on so much some scriptures. I was that guy who could, who could get in. And I know you got into this a little bit too, Ben, <laughs> about being able to really like use the scriptures to browbeat people politically, right? It's like every missionary has to go through a stage of Bible bashing on their mission. I had <laughs> my own personal journey is I had to go through a stage of being able to like politics bash with the scriptures, right? And, you know, when I was at BYU, and I think even when you, when you were at BYU, because we were going to be just a little bit there at uh, together, you graduated before I did, uh, but there was an article in the, was it the Daily Universe? No, the, what's BYU's newspaper? Daily Universe. Oh, the Daily Universe, isn't it? Okay. The, I'm thinking, no, the Daily Planet. I'm like, no, that's Superman. No, the Daily <laughs> Universe. Okay. <laughs> the Daily Universe. And I still remember, it's like 10 years, no, it's been longer than that. It's been like 13 years later, is that there was this article came out called the Mormon Trump Card. And the Mormon Trump Card is basically when we're able to quote the prophets to justify our political, our, our own particular opinion. And so we've lined up a bunch. And so it basically becomes like this game of like prophetic poker. We're like, well, I'll call your Gordon B. Hinckley and I'll raise you two Ezra Taft Benson and one Tom, you know, Thomas S. Monson. Right. And it's just, and it's just like, you know, you start to battle each other with the words of the prophets to be able to prove a, a particular opinion. And, and, you know, so I've, I've had to go through life and recognize that, you know what, a lot of the opinions and the beliefs very, very emotionally held and strongly emotionally held belief systems that I'd put meaning on top of certain verses, I've had to repent, you know, like we talk about repentance where you learn to see God and yourself and each other different, I've had to step back on a few things and say, do I, do I really know as much as I think I know about these verses? Realize that I don't. Take a big, take a really big, deep sigh, and then just go down the other road, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think in a lot of ways, you know, some sections like this, we're going to find some, some places here where God seems like really, really, really violent and vengeful. 
And, and I know that Joseph Smith and especially Brigham Young are going to pick up a lot of these verses and he's, and they're going to kind of run with them for a little while. Now, nowadays we don't, we don't enter into quite this kind of rhetoric nowadays. We don't actually come out and speak against these verses, but then again, we don't really invoke or use these to promote old interpretations either. So it's, it's really kind of interesting as we, as we get into this to keep in mind that we're dealing with scriptures that were spoken to these particular men and women in their times based on the questions they're asking. And so, yeah, to come back and to really try to think about what, what kind of question were they asking to get this response? Because there's this section transitions so often. I'm like, man, did they have like a list of questions that they went to? They're like, yeah, yeah it does seem to, to jump. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, it's, it's just, it's a, it's a fascinating section for that reason for me. Well, just to, to comment a, a little bit again on verse five, I'd really like to extend this, this metaphor out a little bit. You know, he brings up the word advocate. So this invokes ideas of a courtroom, right? And, and I just kind of sat and asked myself, okay, so if, if Christ and the father are my advocate, you know, what other roles do we have to play here? Well, we've got sort of the prosecutor, right? The accuser who is, is, would be literally Satan because that's what Satan means. He, he would be that, the accuser. And then who's the judge? Because if it's not God, if it's not the Father who is actually our advocate along with Christ, he's on our side of the room, so to speak, on our side advocating our cause or the cause of Christ, which is our cause, then who's the judge? Like kind of as soon as I ask the question, I realize it's us. Like we're our own judge. Right, And at any given point, we can choose to go with what Christ thinks of us or what Satan thinks of us. And that was really powerful for me to realize that. That is where that judgment sort of sits, right? And that when we see Christ pleading our case, he's pleading with us. But he's also pleading with us on behalf of others on behalf of those around us that we try to sit in judgment of rather than allowing themselves to be in the judgment seat. We try to put ourselves there and Christ comes to us and says, come down. That's not where you belong. <laughs> you know, that you're just supposed to be in your own judgment seat and, and I'm advocating your, your cause. So anyway, that just kind of expanding that metaphor a little bit there um, really made me think about it in in a new way and and opened up a thought experiment that allowed me to sort of discipline, I guess you could say, the way that I view myself and God in a little better way. Isn't that interesting that when we really put it into those terms, that that really, as you were talking, that really brings home for me just how much I accuse myself every day, and I and, and it's done subconsciously. There are so many layers of, I should be doing this, I should be doing that, I should be more ahead in this, I should, you know, all these shoulds, things in my life that cause anxiety, you know, st stacked emotions that are not dealt with, that end up causing anxiety and kind of shut you down and and make it to where you're not able to progress and to do the things. And then there's the narratives that you should be doing other things that you're not. And yeah, to realize that you're standing there as the judge and, and Satan is the one telling you about all the things that are wrong and accusing you of all the things that are justified and Christ and the father are on the other side speaking their case. And we're the ones who get to choose. Yeah. 
I love that. You know, and later in this section, he talks about we receive wages of of the voice we list to obey, right? So if we're sitting there in the judgment, you know, we're either listening to the accuser or we're listening to the advocate, right? And we're listening to the accuser. That's where we're getting our wages from, so to speak, right? That's how we're starting to see ourselves. Anyway, that uh, that really kind of uh, made that a little deeper for me and, and meaningful. So yeah, moving on into this section, you know, starting about verse eight, we do have, we kind of shift tones a bit. Right, we get we get into apocalyptic literature, so to speak. This turns a little revelationy, right? <laughs> we get end time stuff. We got to talk about destruction and the wicked and the burning and and all this sort of stuff. But remember, this is uh, I think it's useful to remember. I should say that there's uh, heavily steeped in symbolism here, and and if we really like see the context of each of these things, we can understand better. Why is this being used? Where does this symbolism come from? This is not modern symbolism. This is actually really ancient symbolism. And it's being used here because all of these people are are very steeped in that ancient scriptural symbolism. And so these are all the phrases that are evoking these, these scriptural uh, memories for them, so to speak, right? Yeah. And so all this is being used. Uh, verse, verse 9, particularly interesting here. It says, For the hour is nigh and the day is soon at hand. When the earth is ripe. Okay, so we talked about the harvest, right? And when do you go harvest? Well, when things are ripe. Okay, so a lot of times we say ripe in iniquity. Here it doesn't say ripe in iniquity. It just says the earth is ripe and all the proud and they who do wickedly shall be as stubble. But ripe in this context, if we follow this through with stubble, ripe actually is ripe as in the field is white all ready to harvest. Okay, so you have... When it's wheat, you have that wheat that grows and you have the head of the wheat that produces the kernels. And the kernels are the real part of the wheat. They're the actual nutritious part, the part, the seed that you could plant. Everything else is basically worthless in terms of nutrition for what we want to harvest. We don't want to harvest anything else. There's other uses for the other stuff, but we don't want to harvest anything else. So what do we have here? And all the proud and they that do wickedly shall be as stubble. Well, the rest is stubble. So you go through and you harvest the wheat and everything that falls off and down onto the ground is stubble. And then what they do is uh, typically go through and burn that and mix it into the soil and it revitalizes the soil. But the the part that uh, you're not losing the plant when you do this, this isn't a destructive process, right? Nothing's nothing's being destroyed in a in a in eternal sense, right? It, this is the the burning that purifies and and enriches the soil so that more can be grown and what's saved is the kernel the good part so often we talk about you know the, the verse continues and i will burn them up saith the lord of hosts that wickedness shall not be upon the earth and so often we talk about the second coming in terms of when the lord comes the all of the people all of the wicked people are going to be massacred, and then all of the righteous people are going to be saved. But we know that when, at least in terms of like natural disaster and stuff happens, just as many good people as bad people die, if not more, right? So that's not what we're talking about here. In this sense here, the stubble that's being destroyed is actually the part around the kernel that's not nutritious, right? So we, we've been talking about 
um, in several podcasts now about the idea of the false self. And when that false self can be taken away, we get at the true self. And so I like this metaphor of the wheat and the harvest and the stubble as another way simply of sort of explaining what you were talking about when you were talking about Michelangelo and the statues and how Michelangelo said he just, he saw the statue already there and all he had to do was remove the part that didn't belong, right? And so that's what I see here is that when the Lord comes, all of us, so to speak, our false identities have to fall away. They don't have any place in the presence of God. They are burned up, right? All that has to stand before Christ is who we truly are. And all of that false self, which is analogous to wickedness, because it's us acting within, not within our true selves, that just falls away and it's burned up. And what remains is the true self, that kernel that's harvested or that statue that's the true masterpiece. See, that's so good. (laughs) (laughs) That's so much better than is like wicked on one side, righteous on the other, wicked burn and go to hell. Righteous, you get to have little baby harps for eternity. There's just just not much meaning in that, right? It's like, what does that really give us or tell us about ourselves and how we can know God more? It, it, It doesn't like it. I just, I really like this other way of viewing it so much better. It's just, it means so much more and, and actually has more power to to help me understand who I am and who God is more. Yeah, see, that interpretation has never landed for me because at the very beginning, when you have a God that you posit knows all eternity to all eternity, and he can see where this particular element is going to eventually end up in hell, and yet you still process it through because you're like, heck, why not? Agency. You're like, wait, wait, that's that's not that's not the it. And and to and to have that kind of idea of God, you know, even from a, like a creatio ex nihilo standpoint, where God makes everything out of nothing, then God is responsible for all the sin and depravity in the world where that he created because he couldn't think of a world better or a universe better enough to or a reality better enough to create. Unless you're like this guy named Leibniz who believed that of all the endless possibilities of universes that God could have created. This was the best one. And so we just have to suck it up and kind of live with it. But that just, that doesn't make any sense to me and it never has. But when we start to see that God is, and I like the way that you talk about the stubble kind of from an individual perspective, but even if we are still going to draw the kind of analogy out that the wicked are what's left behind, that, you know, the wheat are the good people and, and the stubble are the bad people. And we're going to try to make this a dichotomy, even in that discussion, to realize in these ancient analogies, nothing went to waste, or very little anyway went to waste, and that that the ash that was used or that was made, whether or not we're talking about Jacob 5's allegory or we're talking about this wheat allegory, whatever we're talking about, the ash was integral and absolutely necessary to not just the nutrients of the soil, but especially in an arid climate, these nutrients of this ash would go down and it would help trap the moisture in the ground around the root to even be able to make these plants grow in the desert. And so when you're dealing with these kinds of these kinds of plants, you're dealing with this in arid arid regions, olive trees and these weeds, you need this kind of wheat. And in fact, the ash, you know, is from olive branches and, and other ashes were incorporated into the fuller soap. 
So in Malachi, when when Moroni comes to Joseph Smith there that one night, he rehearses those scriptures over and over and over again. When he appears to Joseph, he he mentions Malachi three, and he says, and in part of this in Malachi three verse one, behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come into his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom you delight. Behold, he said, he come, saith the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like a fuller's soap. So this whole concept of a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. The refiner's fire drops the dross out, and the fuller's soap is made from the ash. And fuller's soap is what they would use to be able to clean and to purify. It was a very harsh soap, and it was it was a very dirty job to be able to use this soap. But this is the only thing they were able to use to even make wool possible and, and for use to clean it and to make and to make it white. And, and that whole symbolism of white, this was a major area in which they used to make things white. And so the whole element of purity. So because we're not familiar with their ways of thinking, we lose understood ways of thinking about these allegories. And we just think that God's going to burn up the wicked and he's going to save the righteous and that's it. And so I have to wonder, though, number one, God knowing all beforehand, and this is a conversation as old as time, well, modern time anyway, about how a loving God can create and can can punish people who came to this life who it, it just knowing that they were going to go to hell to begin with. It's like, why even do it? And yet some of our, sometimes in Mormonism, our assumptions and how we come to the scriptures ends up positing the same problem. But when we recognize that God is here working, his entire work and glory is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of men, that he's coming down here, and that he's going to, and the proud, they that do wickedly shall be a stubble, and they shall, and the Lord shall burn them up, and the wicked shall not be upon the earth. This is a moment of transformation. When the Lord is literally taking from one state and transforming into another, as he's using each child and each child's choices and decisions as he's reevaluating these people's lives into his own purpose. And I think we take too much responsibility upon ourselves a lot of the time when we try to think that we are sifting the good and the bad away from each other because we admonish each other entirely too much when we should just be sitting with each other. And then we end up thinking that we're dividing God's people on the right and the left when in reality... He has his own calculus that he's using, and his job is to bring to pass everyone. And I think that if we're looking at this whole concept that that God can only bring about his kingdom if he kills all the wicked people, I really don't think we've truly analyzed just how much that idea decreases the idea of God. To have a God that can only, you know, had failed at everything until he just came in and violently wiped all the wicked people off the earth. I know this is the flood narrative. I know that this is the way that we view God, but I don't think we've truly been able to wrestle with and to grapple with this idea that God fails and then has to use violence just to like wipe everything up. And so his doctrine is so weak, utilizing this agency thing that he just has to wipe over everybody off and start over again. I know those are the narratives we like to use about the flood. I know those are the narratives that we like to use about the end of days. But when we take it into other discussions, those arguments just don't hold water for me. So yeah, I really like what you had to say there, Ben. I think that solves a lot of issues.
Well, you know, he goes on with this, and it's supported in other scriptures as well. I know you really like to bring this scripture up from Alma chapter 9, but it goes with verse 11. It says, For I will reveal myself from heaven with power and great glory, and with all the hosts thereof, and dwell in righteousness with men on earth a thousand years, and the wicked shall not stand. So we have two things here, power and glory. And elsewhere in the scriptures, I think the the most authoritative and and powerful to use the word in the definition uh, definition of power comes from Doctrine and Covenants one twenty one. In one sense, it's a negative definition because he says no power authority can or ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood. So no unrighteous dominion. And then he goes to explain how that happens. Not compulsory means gentleness, love, kindness, pure knowledge. This is power, right? So if the Lord is coming with power, he's not coming to compel or destroy or violently cast out entire individuals and souls. And then great glory, you know, I I do uh, love what, is it Alma or Amulek in chapter 9 here? Alma, it's got to be Alma. Anyway, so Alma chapter 9, verse 26. And not many days hence, the Son of God shall come in his glory. So this is before the birth of Christ. And Alma is talking about it, him coming in his glory, right? Often, I think, yeah, the first in time. terms of, yeah, yeah, the first time. You know, when we talk about God coming in his glory, we think, oh, that's second coming, you know, because the first time it was this, this humble thing. But actually, his humility is his glory. So the Son of God shall come in his glory, and his glory shall be the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace, equity, and truth, full of patience, mercy, and long-suffering, quick to hear the cries of his people and to answer their prayers. So if he's coming in power and glory, that's how he's coming. So we really need to look at these scriptures in a little more nuanced way. What is it that these are saying and why are they saying it this way? And I think one of the answers to that is because that's the way the question was asked. And those are the assumptions that are made often by those that were receiving it, right? And so we receive what we're ready to receive. And when we're ready to receive more, line upon line, precept upon precept, the Lord is there willing to give it to us. We need only ask the question. In fact, he just said that in the previous verse, verse 6. And as it is written, whatsoever ye shall ask in faith, being united in prayer according to my command, ye shall receive. Yeah, it really does end up helping to frame this by really asking ourselves, it really is a grand key. It is. <laughs> Joseph must have most Joseph must have known what he was talking about when he <laughs> <laughs> Every once in a while he did. <laughs> you know, right? And so and so he comes out here with this with this grand key to ask what were they asking the question to? In verse twelve, and again verily I say unto you, and it hath gone forth in a firm decree by the will of the Father that mine apostles and the twelve which were with me in my ministry in Jerusalem shall stand at my right hand at the day of my coming in the pillar of fire, being clothed with the robes of righteousness, with crowns on their heads, in glory, even as I am, to judge the whole house of Israel, even as many as have loved me and keep my commandments, and none else. And for a trump shall sound both long and loud, even as upon Mount Sinai, and all the earth shall quake, and they shall come forth, yea, even the dead which died in me, to receive a crown of righteousness, to be clothed upon, even as I am, to be with me, that we may be one. 
See, and now with these verses, we're getting in now into this kind of apocalyptic phase where now we're talking really in terms of, and we've already kind of been in it now, right? With, uh, with this whole burning uh, that we've been mm-hmm. talking about in verse mm-hmm. nine. But it starts to get deeper, deeper into it, you know, kind of like zigzags down into it. Right. And now finally in verse 14, this is actually the prophecy of Joel. Mm-hmm. Behold, I say unto you that before this great day shall come with the sun shall be darkened and the moon turned to blood and the stars shall fall from the heaven and there shall be greater signs in heavens above and in the earth beneath. President Hinckley in, in October 2001 had said that prophecy had been fulfilled explicitly straight up. I think it's like the third paragraph down in the talk, Living in the Fullness of Times. He says, the prophecy of Joel hath been fulfilled, wherein he said, and then he quotes this scripture. So it's explicit. <laughs> I don't know how other more prophetic way you can come to say that something has been fulfilled than when he says the prophecy hath been fulfilled. But he said it. So we are living in the time when that end of days prophecy has been fulfilled. Now, for me, I have absolutely no idea what that means. <laughs> I don't even know. Now, I grew up kind of in a home where, you know, there was this one, my parents, I don't even know how they got it, but it was like this six VHS set of like the book of Revelation and, and talking about all of the interpretation about what this means. And it was done by some Christian group. I think it was gifted to my parents and my parents never really put any stock in it, but you know, it's back in the day, VHS are like expensive and it's nuanced. And so if somebody gifted you VHS, you know, you didn't throw any of that away, right? (laughs) And so, and so anyway, it got stuck on our like little movie shelf. And on, on Sundays I'd come in and ask my parents, like, Hey, can I watch something on TV? (laughs) And the answer is always inevitably almost no. Until I was like, can I watch that Revelation video? <laughs> and even in the day, it was like the worst, most boring video ever. But you're watching TV. But I'm watching TV, right? <laughs> <laughs> so it doesn't matter. And, uh, and But the one thing that was impressed upon me from a very young age watching that video in particular is that I remember them talking about, you know, Russia is doing this and the geopolitics and, you know, the U.S. did this and another country did that and that, and that solves this verse. And I remember thinking, that's stupid. <laughs> and and I just got a really bad taste in my mouth as a young child listening to this ge- this geopolitical exegesis and it's like <laughs> and I was like that's not the way this works and I just I felt so strongly at the time and it was like I think that was my first real major political uh opinion that I held at the young age was watching these book of revelation videos when I, you know in the in the early 90s and so when uh whenever I read this and I, and I, I, and I hear it all the time. We're not immune to it as a church in our culture. We hear end of days prophecies all over the place. There's, there's not a small handful of people who are willing to take each one of these scriptures and say, well, this one has been fulfilled by this event. Sure. Get really specific about and it. And they get sure. real specific. And you know what? I've been inundated in the last year and a half, especially with like QAnon and everything else going on in, in this country by these kinds of messages about how we're fulfilling massive prophecies right now, really fast. And I'm like, yes, obviously so. We are fulfilling prophecies, but not in the way that anybody's ever thought, because it's this is all allegorical. And when we're talking about God coming to burn things, he's coming to purge them. It's a sanctification. Fire is sanctifying. It's destructive, but the destruction is not physical. It's a spirit. It's a transformational destruction. John said, "I baptize you with water, but he that cometh will baptize you with the Holy Ghost. You know, with fire." Yeah, so there's something different going on there. 
Yeah, that, exactly right. So yeah, th that kind of whole end of days prophecy thing for me has really taken on a completely different bent. Whenever, whenever I'll listen to all the videos, I get sent dozens of videos over, over the months of these kinds of sorts from the most random people. I think they're just going through random. You know, I, I have a lot of Facebook friends and I don't know half of them. I have a game that whenever someone's picture pops up with their you family. You know half of your Facebook friends? I know of, I know of half of them. <laughs> <laughs> there were people that I used to add like way, way, way back in the day whenever I was politicking and, and I'd just like add people who were like into the same kind of philosophical bent that I was. And then they, they just stopped showing up on my feed. And so now I, I like go through my Facebook feed and I'm like, who, who is that? And they're like, I don't know. We have like five friends in common. Anyway, I see this all the time. These videos get sent about all of the, the end of days prophecies and about all the geopolitics that, that fulfills them. And it never, it, it's, it just, it never amounts to anything. And as I've come to it, Elder Maxwell had one time said that we will not understand the signs of the time unless we have the spiritual eyes to see that they're talking about spiritual things. They're not talking, we're not talking about geopolitical machinations of Machinations? Machinations? Machinations. Machinations of things you would watch on CNN or Fox News. We're not going to get biblical exegesis from, from CNN or, or Fox News. And so we're not going to get the fulfillment of the prophecy there. So these things, and I love what you brought up about them, is is they are highly allegorical. They're, they're highly symbolic here. And so the, one of the problems is we take these as highly literal when when the value here is is much more rooted in its symbolic nature and its allegory than in its its actual physical property. So having said that, Shallow, what does it mean that uh, the Lord God will send forth flies upon the face of the earth, which shall take hold of the inhabitants thereof and shall eat their flesh and shall cause maggots to come in upon them? <laughs> what is that symbolizing? I've I have been no sitting idea. With that, I've been sitting with that verse. <laughs> I've been, I've been sitting with that verse all day long and I've looked up a bunch of commentary. I'm like, there's a few things that people have talked about it and they're like, yeah, it's just going to be bad, isn't it? And that's about the the best we can get. It almost seems like a hyperbole thing. Yeah. Like, hey, this is going to be bad. You know, there's going to be bad stuff happening and whatever your state of being is when that's happening, you can either look at it as a blessing or a curse, but yeah. Yeah. Right. And, you know, and I look at verse 16 and it says, and there shall be a great hailstorm sent forth to destroy the crops of the earth. I'm like, that's a freaking massive hailstorm. Well, that happens like, every year at some point, you know. Like, like the whole earth? And I'm like, <laughs> that's some major global warming cooling going on there. But yeah, I mean, th this kind of stuff. Now, could it absolutely happen? I have no problem if that's the case. Sure, sure. Sure. And, and, and it can, you know, lightning can strike in a billion places at once. But in this particular case, I think this has far more allegorical value, even though I, I don't fully understand it. It was a major revelation when I, when I was finally recognizing and realizing this whole Ash Fuller soap. And I started getting into the actual history of reading the journal articles about what these people used to do with the ash from the olive trees and from the, the wheat and how they used to incorporate that back into the soil. And just realizing the, the time and the age, this other stuff, I would love for anyone who listens... To, to this to be able to come in and to to do the research to find out how this how the context of these allegories in the ancient days played out that would be a fascinating discussion so if anybody has any insights on that please let me know because i've been thinking about this all day the flies and the maggots in the face <laughs> it's good stuff yeah you know getting down to, to verse 21 we have this uh, phrase that that nephi uses a lot in his prophecy you know talking about the the great and abominable church which is the whore of all the earth so i i wanted to look into this phrase just because you know it's used so much within latter-day saint apocalyptic 
literature, literature, scripture, <laughs> that um, I wanted to know, you know, more of the, the context of this and sort of cross-reference it a bunch. And I ran across just a little article, I guess you could say, written by a professor of ancient scripture. And this was quite a while back, like back in 1988. In any case, he, he talks about this phrase and and Great and Abominable Church and goes into a, a lot of good points about it and and sort of dispelling a few myths in here, here and there about it. But one, he makes one point about apocalyptic, apocalyptic writing that I thought was really important to this section as a whole. And so I was going to read what he says here. He says, apocalyptic literature is dualistic since it deals with types. Everything boils down to op- opposing principles, love and hate, good and evil, light and dark. There are no gray areas in apocalyptic writing. In this sense, There are only two categories in the realm of religion, religion that will save and religion that won't. The former is the church of the lamb and the latter, no matter how well-intentioned, is a counterfeit. So the reason I think that this sort of illuminates this section a little bit is because we do get pretty black and white here about the wicked and the righteous and the wicked being destroyed and the righteous being saved. And I think it, it bears just bringing out the fact that that is this style of scripture right here. We've we've gotten into this is sort of a poetic type of description. There's some hyperbole here. There's a symbolic representation. There's lots of allusions to the Book of Revelation and like Ezekiel. Even it says straight up says mouth of Ezekiel in here, right? And so <clears throat> this is the style, and it gets into this dualistic mindset. Uh, by the way, that this is from an article by Stephen E. Robinson. He's he's the author that uh, wrote Believe in Christ and uh, a bunch of those yeah. books. Yeah. Yeah. In any case, I thought that was a really interesting point to make about this is talking about the dualism of it because we've we've commented on this concept of dualism uh, several times in previous podcasts. Um, talking about how our world here is a world of dualism. And this whole section is talking about, you know, the end of times and how everything is going to be presented in a dualistic fashion. And that's our perception, right? This is how we're going to experience it in a very dualistic way. But then after he goes into all of this stuff, everlasting fire, devil and his angels, you know, everything cast out, righteous saved. Then we get to verse 30. And the Lord says, but remember that all my judgments are not given unto men. And as the words have gone forth out of my mouth, even so shall they be fulfilled, that the first shall be last and the last shall be first in all things whatsoever I have created by the word of my power, which is the power of my spirit. For by the power of my spirit I created them, yea, all things, both spiritual and temporal, first spiritual, secondly temporal, which is the beginning of my work, and again first temporal, and secondly spiritual, which is the last of my work. Here we, we got very very dualistic ways of describing things. Okay. And the Lord says, why here in the second, in the next verse, speaking unto you that you may naturally understand, but unto myself, my works have no end, neither beginning, but it is given unto you that you may understand because you have asked it of me and are agreed. Okay. So this verse here is one of the great keys, I think, to understanding this entire section of the doctrine and covenants. He's speaking to us in dualistic terms, natural terms, so that we will understand. But to him, things are not dualistic. All things are spiritual. All things are one eternal round. 
His work has no end. The last is first. The first is last. It doesn't make a difference, right? It's the parable of the workers in the vineyard. The first one goes out and he's paid. Second goes all the way to the last and he's paid the same as everybody else. First is last. Last is first. It doesn't make any difference to him. It's all one eternal round. But from our natural, mortal, temporal perception, things get dualistic. And so he's going to speak to us in those terms. So what does he say? So that you may understand. And because you have asked it of me, <laughs> you're getting the answer to the question you asked. Wherefore, verily I say unto you, all things unto me are spiritual, and not at any time have I given unto you a law which was temporal. Neither any man, nor the children of men, neither Adam, your father, whom I created. So we, we have a lot of things that we think of as temporal commandments or temporal laws, and we treat them that way and forget about the deeper spiritual principle that they're based on, that the Lord is really trying to teach us so that we don't separate these things out. He's trying to bring us away from, from that dualistic thinking, which, you know, you talked about this before, is, is sort of what was initiated by the fall. That's kind of the whole condition of the fall is this dualistic world and mindset that we are in, which is so fascinating because that's what he then starts to go into, right? Adam and Eve and the fall. So he starts with the concept of, of Satan, then brings Satan in. He tempts Adam. You have the fall and you have spiritual death and physical death. So you enter into this duality of, of the world. And then all all winds up with repenting and seeing God for who he really is and then coming into an understanding of him. And so, you know, he 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 then separates it out and then brings it back together again. And so, again, that verse 33 to me was the great key that kind of opened up this section for me to to again remember this is all based on the question that's asked. We're presenting a dualistic narrative here. But the Lord wants to bring it back all to a spiritual narrative for us if we will listen to his voice, as verse one says. Yeah, I love how this verse, this this section evolves. And yeah, verse 33, what a great, what a great verse. And I and I love what your your treatment of it here in in talking that way with it. Because, you know, we learn in section one, you know, going all the way back to section one in uh I'm turning there, I think it's in the what verse. I can see it in my mind. It's on the right page, left column. <laughs> but he says that that these things are given unto their servants in their weakness, that these commandments are given to their servants in their weakness, right? And after the manner of their language, that they might come to understanding. And I love verse 24 in section one, because it's talking that the servants have weakness, that the Lord is talking to them in their language and in their understanding. And in that way, yeah, through the fall, part of that fall was this epistemic coming into seeing the world in its opposites, in, in the duality. You know, good from evil and, and right from wrong and, and black from white and hot from cold. And, you know, Father Lehi talks about this. And, and so we begin to see things this way, but the point is not to stay in a world of dualism. The point is to go back into the state of, of innocence when we eat of the fruit of the tree of life, the love of God, the singular fruit of that singular tree. 
And in that, we, we pass through cherubim who purifies and sanctifies. All of a sudden, we go through another burning ritual where we have to be purified and sanctified to come back into the love of God. So in all of this, we were beginning to see a much more loving God in all of this. Amidst all of this talk of, of this, this carnage God, right? <laughs> the hmm. one who comes down and, and is bringing hellfire and damnation and destruction upon everybody and who, and who so willfully is bringing the sword of, of destruction to kill everyone. You know, we, there are several other verses here that we're not going to cover in this podcast here about how, you know, God's coming down here to destroy and to be destructive, but it's the same principles applying here. He's talking to them in their language and their understanding. He's talking to them in the ways in which they've been steeped and trained in getting them to understand the next thing. And it, it's, it's a beautiful grace that God gives each of us, that as we begin to come to God, he's going to speak to us in, in the way that we need it right now. You know, I, I've had a personal experiences, and I've talked about it before, when I've gone to my own journals and I've done this, you know, it's, it's been several years ago since I first had this realization. When I started to recognize in my own journal writing that uh, that I was a little bit more sure, I, I wrote it with a little bit more surety than what I actually had during the experience. So as I went through and I read my journals, it was that, uh, man, I, I look like a spiritual superhero to myself. And I'm like, wow, I, I didn't realize that was my experience, but that was awesome. And then I started to recognize slowly that no... I was writing with the intent of persuade, literally with the intent to persuade my children that I, I've had experiences with God, but I, I may have oversold the point unintentionally, and and so I've had to be a little bit more honest with my writing of including some you know some of the things that I was actually experiencing some of the, some of the doubts or some of the the uncertainties I guess uncertainties is a better word there of what I was actually experiencing. And then how God comes in and takes over. Because a lot of the times I write and I'm like, and I knew of a surety that God would thus and behold verily take care of me and, and watch over. And it makes it sound more spiritually superhuman than the actual experience was. But as I've gone back and as I've reevaluated it and, and, and looked at the way that God was speaking to me in those moments, that's been another layer that I've had to analyze myself to recognize that God speaks to me at the time that I needed in the way that I needed. Because there are certain ways in which I reasoned my answer from God in certain matters that I look back on it and I'm like, yeah, that kind of reasoning is not good at all. <laughs> that was really bad reasoning. But I remember the peace and the comfort that I had from God's assurance in that moment, regardless of the arguments that I thought of in, in response to that. And in a lot of ways, I, I think the same thing happens to Nephi in the Book of Mormon when he gets all utilitarian and killing Laban. You know, it's the arguments are really bad. And, and to try to posit that God's coming down with some kind of utilitarian ends justify the means kind of arguments. I'm like, is God ends justifies the mean utilitarian? And I'm like, no, he's not. But Nephi needed it at the time. <laughs> hmm. And so I, I've recognized those things of myself. So as I've as I look at these men and I see where where they're coming from and I, st and I study more and I learn more about where they're coming from and where God's trying to lead them and how they're being and how, you know and the, the ways in which they succeed and the other ways in which they fail, I have a lot of empathy and a lot of sympathy and a lot of grace that being able to ask the question what they were trying to to ask to get these kinds of questions. And even though we end up with some kind of some harsh views of God sometimes, 
I look at these men with such an, with such a profound and a deep sense of gratitude for what they endured and what they were going through and what they were trying to discover and that they were willing to take the next step, always willing to take the next step from where they were to trying to find more and more from God. And as God would, and it's, it's in doing that that allows God to be able to stay in the conversation with us, to lead us to the next step, always the next step where we begin to progress and to come more and more into the consciousness of his presence with us there all the time. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. You know, I was looking at verse 36. This has a lot of a lot of meat on this bone here, <laughs> probably for discussion. <laughs> um, and and I, I'm curious how much you really want to delve into. You might say, I don't want to talk about that at all, but, <laughs> <clears throat> but I'm going to read it and see, see, right, see what you, commentary you have. And it came to pass... That Adam being tempted of the devil, for behold, the devil was before Adam, and he rebelled against me, saying, Give me thine honor, which is my power. And also a third part of the hosts of heaven turned he away from me because of their agency. So I got a few questions for you. I want to see what you what your thoughts are on this <laughs> verse. <laughs> All, right. All right, go for it. What, what does it mean the devil was before Adam? Does that mean he was in front of him or does that mean that he was like sequentially before him? I think the meaning of this particular verse is trying to get us to say that Lucifer was devilish before Adam was created in the garden. The, you know, in that whole pre-mortal realm when, when Lucifer uh-huh. was cast down. The devil was before Adam. Yeah, I, it, it's that he existed before or that the devil was already down on the earth pre-existing and Adam was put down into the realm of where the devil was at. Okay. I think it could also mean, you know, before might be like in front of, you know, he presented himself to Adam. The devil presented himself to Adam. But uh, yeah, in any other case. Okay. So so then we have here this, this statement of the devil to, you know, it, it, it's not clear exactly who he's talking to in this verse. Is he talking to... Um, in Latter-day Saint theology, God the Father or Christ. You know, it's supposed to be Christ speaking. But here comes Satan. He says, give me thine honor, which is my power. So he says, give me thine honor. I think that's where the quotes are. And then Christ is commenting on this and he says, which is my power. Does that sound right to you? Um, It's not yeah. Satan's not saying, which is my power, right? He's just saying, give me thine honor. Yeah, give me thine honor, which, yeah, I think it's the Lord saying, yeah, this is a confusing verse. This is more confusing than more. (laughs) That's why I'm trying to ask you these questions. Like, what is going on here? There's so many commas everywhere, and I don't know who's saying what. I I think it deserves a little more punctuation, notwithstanding it has a lot. (laughs) Yeah, as I'm looking, I was like, oh, yeah, it's not as straightforward as I thought. No, so give me thine honor. So that's Satan talking, Mm -hmm. which which is my power, is the Lord coming back again. So, you know, so... It is weird. Is this God the Father talking about this? Because in Moses, you know, it's Satan coming to the Father, and it's the Father's plan. So give me thine honor, which is my power. So I, th- I think the which is my power is God talking, but give me thine honor is is Lucifer talking. And you know, no man t- taketh this honor unto himself. You know, is it's uh, mm-hmm. oh man, that's stretching my my Old Testament or my New Testament. <laughs> uh, is that Hebrews five? Um, no man taketh this honor to himself. But he that was called of God as was Aaron. Uh, right. I think that's Hebrews, but I'm not. Uh, <laughs> it is. All right. New okay. Testament scripture mastery. Save me. Yeah. So no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God as was Aaron. You know, so, so is the same honor that's in the New Testament, the same honor that's being used here. I go out on a branch and say, yes, they're, they're talking about the same thing. 
for me, my interpretation of this for for the last decade or so has been that Lucifer was in in this pre-mortal story, Lucifer was seeking to have the have a particular priesthood key from God. He thought that God wielded the power, you know, the positive legal power over reality and that God could make reality whatever he wanted and that Lucifer could get that said power from God to be able to redefine reality according to the dictates of whatever God wanted. And so God's positive procreative idea about coming to earth and having all of these and having the earth be what the earth was and all the problems that the earth would have, that already Lucifer is kind of living in his own state of dualism where he's wanting the honor of God. He's wanting the power of God. He's wanting the authority of God. He's, he's wanting that, that priesthood to be able to redefine all of this. So whatever this is that makes God God, Lucifer wanted a piece of it so that he could go do whatever he wanted because the, the failure of the father's plan was the need for a savior in this whole thing. And so you can begin to see that uh, he rebelled against me saying, hey, give me thine honor, which is my power. And he also turned a third part of the host of heaven and he turned away from me because of their agency. I think that last part is just talking that even in the pre-mortal realm, there was, there was agency, that each one of these uh, spirit beings as we were operated on the principle of agency. Yeah, I mean, this phrase, give me thine honor, I, I, I think bringing a priesthood is as appropriate in this context. But I think specifically, you know, if this is Christ talking and he's saying, which is my power, you know, this could be referring to Christ's commission from the Father to be the anointed one, right? So Christ is anointed as the Messiah. And we talk about not predestination, but foreordination, right? Christ is quote-unquote, ordained to this honor of being the Messiah, the one who's anointed to come and and save. And Lucifer says, give that to me, right? And uh, that way we won't have to deal with all of this suffering because nobody wants to suffer, right? We're going to do this whole thing without the suffering part. Christ says that's actually a necessary, important part of the experience of what it is to be God is to understand what suffering is. And you can't get rid of that and expect these people to understand who God is. You can't just take that away. That's important part of it. This third part thing, I don't even, I don't even know. It, have you heard all these discussions that people always bring up? Oh, third part doesn't mean a third. Does that, does that hold any water for you? For me, it's always been like, that's, that's, that's silly. It means a third. <laughs> Oh, a third part? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you heard that before? <laughs> well, what's the other two parts then? I, that's what I could never... I always ask the... And, you know, they have some advantages some for it. And there may or may not be something to that. I don't know if this is literally talking about like, hey, there are three trillion spirit children of Heavenly Father and one trillion of them, you know, went away. It followed Satan, right? Like, I don't know if we're talking about like an actual qualitative analysis here of of the hosts of heaven there there seems to be maybe some more symbolism going on here but i don't really know what it is i think i think what it is to say is that a third is a lot and there's this part i don't remember where it is in the scriptures you know it says that the heavens wept over them and that's what i think this is trying to tell us that this is a great sadness, eternal tragedy that even the heavens wept over, experienced great sorrow for. 
And uh, so I don't I don't know if you know it, we're talking about an actual third or a third part, and there was another division. But I do know that a third is a lot of something. Yeah, I, I I've always understood that it was a third, not a a third part. And so, and so yeah, in in this particular uh, in this particular verse, it does seem to add some ambiguity to that. But and they were thrust down, and thus became, and thus he came the devil and his angels. And behold, there is a place prepared for them from the beginning, which place is hell. You know, an interesting phrase, an interesting verse thirty-eight. The place prepared for them this from the beginning, which place is hell. We don't, as Latter Day Saints, really view hell in the, kind of the Dante Inferno version of hell, of like heaven and hell, Mm-mm. this place of burning and in pitchforks and flames. Even though you know it talks about this in some in some places, but <laughs> I mean, we got the three kingdoms of glory. Everyone's going to inherit a particular kingdom of glory, except those sons of perditions which get outer darkness, right? And so, if outer darkness is hell in this case, it's so nuanced that so many that most people won't even recognize it. So why make a big deal out of it? Sure. And so, but you know, this kind of hell it really does kind of cause more questions than it has answers. And so I think this kind of hell also becomes far more allegorical and more epistemic than it actually becomes metaphysical. A place prepared for them really does seem to suggest that there is a physical location. But then with the rest of our theology and looking at the three degrees of glory, you know, it's been said that anything outside the Father's presence in the in the highest level of the celestial kingdom is considered hell. Yeah, it's a, it, it, can be ter- it can be a relative term. In this sense. In fact, actually, hell etymologically is a relative term. It comes, you know, if you you go back, it's actually that which is below. Okay, so you're talking about the earth, which is below. And so in this context, you could say that place is hell. Well, they're just talking about the earth because the earth was below. And where did where is Satan and his angels were cast out to? Well, they were cast out to the earth. So in this context, earth is hell. (laughs) Okay, and and that's not too far from. You know, like uh, a, a Latter-day Saint understanding even of like planet salvation stuff, because we talk about the telestial kingdom, supposedly the lowest of the kingdom of glory, of being, you know, much greater, more desirable than our existence here on earth itself. And so, you know, talking about this as hell in terms of this is where Satan and his angels were cast to is not, you know, I don't think it's out of the realm of, of that definition at all. And again, hell kind of is a relative term. But I think to your point, of the you know it being epistemic i think that actually is is much more significant because this is about a mindset and we say place a lot of times when we're speaking metaphorically about you know i'm in a place where i think this and it doesn't mean you're like physically in a place it means you're in a mindset or a perception that this is how you view reality xyz and that's what i see this as as well you know, what is the place prepared for those who view reality in this way? It's hell. That's 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 the description. It's just a description. Again, not a prescription. It's a description of the world they live in, so to speak, right? Of the world, the perceptions they have of, of the world that they live in. Yeah. That thing. <laughs> <laughs> you know that mindset you're in? Yeah, that's hell. That's hell. <laughs> Yeah, and people describe it that way too. You know, that's really that's not. Uh, I don't think that's such an earth-shattering uh, way of of uh, viewing it and understanding it. People people know that 
there are times in their life that they've been living in hell, right? And 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 that it has largely to do with uh, with their circumstances, but also their perception of what's going on in the world around them. Yeah. Moving on here in the end of verse 40, and it came to pass that the devil tempted Adam and he partook of the forbidden fruit and transgressed the commandment wherein he became subject to the will of the devil because he yielded into temptation. I think it's interesting that we have this particular narrative here and we don't have the other narrative that incorporates Eve. Hmm. You know, this, this is talking specifically about just Adam. Adam's being identified. Adam's the one who's, who's, who's uh, being tempted. Adam's the one that was uh, transgressed. And so it's just a different uh, emphasis that uh, that I appreciate here, as opposed to kind of the eternal scapegoating: Adam blaming Eve, Eve bl- blaming Satan, Satan blaming whatever <laughs> else has been done. Mexican standoff, <laughs> right? Everyone's just it's like yeah, I don't I don't want to bear the consequence of this. Everybody else made me do it. Yeah. Where wherefore I the Lord caused that he should be cast out from the Garden of Eden from my presence because of his transgression, where he became spiritually dead, which is the first death, even that same death which is the last death which is spiritual, which shall be pronounced upon the wicked when I shall say, Depart ye cursed. But behold, I say unto you that I, the Lord God, gave unto Adam and his seed that they should not die as to the temporal death until I, the Lord God, should send forth angels to declare unto them repentance and redemption through faith on the name of my only begotten Son. And thus did I, the Lord, appoint unto man the days of his probation, that by his natural death he might be raised up into immortality unto eternal life, even as many as would believe. And so this this is one of those things that really starts to establish the Latter-day Saint foundation for the plan of salvation. You know, our need for the, you know, the, the Latter-day Saint belief structure for the need for the atonement and for how we think about the atonement and how we think about our own natures. You know, these few verses do a really good job in helping to frame that kind of context that we eventually adopt and uh, build upon as we start to uh, to see God differently than he'd been seen before. They do, you know. This this outlines the the gospel again. This is like a this is almost like a rough sketch of the plan of salvation, right? You know, again, it kind of gets filled in in a lot more color and detail if we go to like section seventy six. But this is like a a rough sketch outline before we get to <laughs> to the more detailed uh, version. And so um, I see this developing, you know, in in as Joseph Smith is. Is sort of developing this theology, if you want to call it that. It's not really what it is, but um, as he's developing the, their understanding and then receiving this revelation into this, you know, we get into this discussion here of of little children, and and I think it's appropriate in this context because you, you were talking earlier about how that is, a, you know, we're supposed to be reborn and we're supposed to return to that state of innocence. There was a, an article written by. Maybe you'll remember somebody wrote an article for Latter-day Peace Studies a little bit ago, and he talked about complexity or simplicity on the other side of complexity. Yeah. Yeah, Matthew. Matthew did it. Okay. I wasn't sure if it was Matthew or not. Anyway, really excellent. Really good, profound explanations there. And um, I liked how it would fit into this concept here is that we're born and we, we are innocent, but we're also really simple in our understanding and through our life we go and we might expand the complexity in our and our understanding broadens but also we lose our innocence and that the idea of being reborn in christ is that we can regain that innocence but still maintain our our understanding as well right and 
and uh, be reborn into a, a new creature, but a creature, a new creature in Christ, not a creature that's ignorant and innocent, a creature that now has pure knowledge and understanding and is innocent. And so I, I like, you know, ending with this, this idea, you know, that little children are redeemed from the foundation of the world. They cannot sin. Power is not given unto Satan to tempt little children. I like looking at this a little bit back in that context of the the courtroom, right? You know, that that little children in their innocence, you know, accusation doesn't hold any weight for them, right? It's only over time that as as we later in the Doctrine and Covenants, it talks about how our disobedience and our false traditions actually end up taking away this this innocence because of because of the way that we treat them and we teach them. And I think a lot of that has to do with accusation, right? Because we're bringing mm. that, that type of Satan into the whole question here. And, and whereas little children aren't born with that, you know, they aren't born with that concept of, of accusation. And so uh, uh, that is so interesting to me. And, and I, I kind of want to think that through and sit with that for a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I might have to sit with that too. I hadn't, I hadn't looked at it in that way before too, either. Well, we, that just about brings us to the end of section 29. Was there anything else, Ben, that you had uh, thought about to say that we haven't uh, addressed already? You know, I marked up a bunch of stuff, but I, I think that's pretty good. Okay. Well, next week is going to be a little bit different because on schedule for Come Follow Me is an Easter discussion. And then we, uh, so we'll come in and we'll with a discussion about Easter and some impressions about Easter and what that uh, means for us and about uh, the resurrection. And then... The following week, we start back up with the Doctrine and Covenants and cover six sections, or from section 30 to 36. And and so those will be good discussions as I've been kind of perusing over them a little bit already. That You know, some of them are a little bit longer, some of them a little bit shorter. We get a little bit uh, of these, uh, just a little flavor of the template revelations, which I think would be fun to explore again. But there's just going to be so much to uh, to have to sift through in some of these sections to, uh, to really get a, a grasp on. And we're going to soon start getting into the Ohio sections where we're going to start finally migrating into Kirtland because we were going to send those missionaries down from uh, down from Palmyra or for where they're at in New York down into Missouri and once they get it down into Missouri they're going to take a, a pit stop along the way and meet up with Sidney Rigdon and his congregation mm-hmm. and basically double the size of the church overnight yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and annex Joseph- an entire branch right <laughs> And so suddenly the church is, uh, is, is doubled in size from people they don't even know, and they've all been baptized, and all of a sudden they're, they have a fresh new batch of problems that Joseph had never even considered. And, and, and man, what, a, what an interesting story once they start getting into Kirtland. I, I had the opportunity of, uh, of going out there to Kirtland and to Palmyra a couple years ago and to see some of those, those, uh, those buildings, see everything that's there in Kirtland still anyway. And Man, what an what an interesting town, what an interesting time. So I'm looking forward to some of the discussions we have there. So Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you everybody for listening, and we will see you back next week. Until then, for Latter-day Peace Studies, I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thanks for listening.